The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, I'm grateful to my distinguished Texan colleague for his warm introduction. And as you know, at least I hope you know, the subject of the seminar this afternoon, uh, uh, through a good part of which uh, I hope to speak and then uh, have some time for question and answer and uh, contributions uh, from the floor, as it were. The subject is the preaching of the Puritan pastor, John Flavel. I was, uh, to be honest, and honesty is good for the soul, I was actually originally asked if I would uh, address you on the subject of the preaching of John Owen. And uh, I uh, have developed uh, such a love for John Owen and in some ways such a public association with uh, John Owen uh, that uh, I asked if I might take another theme uh, altogether. The nearer the occasion comes, of course, the more one regrets moving from the familiar to the less familiar. But I think there is a great advantage to be gained by us uh, in thinking about the preaching of John Flavel, uh, not least in contradistinction from the preaching of John Owen, but also in the context of the other seminars, at least one of which I'm sure you'll be able to attend later on this afternoon. The names of the other preachers are written in large lights in the history of the Christian church, great preachers of the Christian church, John Chrysostom, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Jonathan Edwards, legendary preachers. But few of us are likely to become legendary preachers. We may aspire to be legendary preachers and our worst moments envy those whose preaching gift uh, raises them to great public prominence. But the great need of our time, and indeed of any time, is not for stellar preachers whose names gain great public prominence. The great need of our time and the great need of every congregation of the Lord's people is for the kind of ministry that the Puritans described as a godly, uh, resident, learned, pastoral ministry. And of that kind of ministry, John Flavel serves as a quite magnificent uh, illustration. What do we try to do when we come to the preaching of a Chrysostom or a Luther or a Jonathan Edwards or, for that matter, a John Flavel? I suppose there are two approaches we can take. We can take the surgical approach, uh, which is to raise the question, how can we knife the body, dissect it, and analyze its faults? The other approach is to say, whatever the inadequacies of this individual's preaching, whatever the limitations of his understanding of the gospel, his knowledge of the principles of homiletics, and most great preachers have scarcely thought twice, actually, about the principles of homiletics. What can I actually learn from someone whose ministry was conducted in another century for the way in which I conduct a preaching ministry in the 21st century? And as I say, one of the benefits, I think, of studying the preaching of someone like John Flavel is because, uh, comparatively speaking, he is an unknown preacher, and he was a man whose total ministry was devoted essentially to a single flock in a relatively out-of-the-way place in the south of England in the 17th century. Let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of his life as we begin. Uh, Flavel lived between 1627 and 1691. 
And that places him in England in a period of history that was marked by almost constant socio-political theological crisis. He was the son of a Puritan minister who was himself, after the great ejection, uh, jailed, uh, who uh, died as a consequence of being in London as a minister of the gospel at the time of the Great Plague immediately before the fire of London. He was a graduate of the University of Oxford, and at the age of 23 in 1650, he moved south to the southwest corner of England to the county of Devon to become an assistant minister in the town of Deptford. Seven years later, he was called to the neighboring and larger seaport of Dartmouth. And apart from periods of exile, and they were indeed periods of exile, he spent uh, the next 34 years of his ministry laboring in Dartmouth. 1662, as a result of the Act of Uniformity and the resulting great ejection, he was ejected from his congregation. Three years later, as a result of the Oxford Act, which forbade non-conforming ministers from either living or preaching within five miles of a major center of population where they had ministered, John Flavel was truly exiled from the people he loved in Dartmouth. Seven years later, when the Declaration of Indulgence was passed in 1672, he was able to return to Dartmouth for a period of 10 years when he labored assiduously among his people. 1682 brought a period of renewed persecution when he fled to London. Five years later, he was able to return again to Dartmouth and he died suddenly four years later in 1691. Two other things uh, that you may wish to know about his life as uh, pieces uh, largely of trivial pursuit. One was that he was married four times, um, which was somewhat in excess of the Puritan norm, um, but uh, remarriage, uh, uh, such was the Puritan view of marriage and life that remarriage uh, was not so unusual as it is today. And the second thing is that it's not surprising to discover that both his preaching uh, contemporaneously and his writing were enormously popular. Two particular works of Flavel's uh, have uh, been kept in print regularly uh, over the last 300 years and been of constant benefit to the people of God. Uh, first of all, his fine work entitled Keeping the Heart, uh, in which he expounds the principle of the book of Proverbs that we are to guard the heart because from it come the issues of life. And secondly, his uh, little book entitled Divine Conduct or the Mystery of Providence, published first of all in 1678. I want to use this afternoon uh, his little work, Divine Conduct or the Mystery of Providence, to illustrate some of the principles of his preaching ministry. And to do that because it does epitomize his preaching style and also uh, because uh, for what used to be 60 pence in old money in the United Kingdom, you can buy a copy of the Mystery of Providence extremely cheaply and uh, discover for yourself the characteristics of Flavel's ministry. But I want to look at him chiefly as an epitome, as a classic illustration of a particular style of preaching, the Puritan style of preaching. That style of preaching seeks to bring together, to weave together three significant dimensions of the ministry of the gospel. First of all, that the ministry of the gospel is a ministry of this word of God, the scriptures. Second, that the ministry of the gospel is a ministry of this word of God to this particular world. And so Flavel is conscious that he is expounding the scriptures for the people of Dartmouth 
in Devon in the second half of the 17th century. And so, uh, to use the language uh, of Stott and Tony Thistleton and others, he is seeking to bring together these two horizons in a way that exhibits familiarity with the Word of God given in the Scriptures and familiarity with this particular world to which he is expounding the Scriptures. But there's a third dimension of which Flavel is conscious, and he gives full rein to it. The dimension that uh, sometimes I think is missing in our appreciation of what is actually involved in preaching, that preaching is the exposition of this word to this particular world by this particular worker. In other words, Flavel exhibits in his preaching the great uh, principle of Phillips Brooks that preaching the gospel always involves the truth of the gospel coming through the individuality of the person who is preaching it, which is part of the explanation for how it is that you can read great sermons of the past that made great impacts on people, and some of them leave you stone cold. Because that uh, third ingredient, that third dimension, has been reduced to, as it were, the one-dimensional nature of mere words. It will help us, I think, to uh, read Flavel, certainly help us to understand Puritan preaching. Uh, if I say also, by way of uh, a general comment, that the Puritan ministers had a very specific understanding of what preaching is or what it is intended to be. The best um, uh, abbreviated expression of that is found in the Westminster Assembly's Directory for the Public Worship of God in a little section that takes up uh, no more than two or three pages entitled, Of the Preaching of the Word of God. And there the Westminster Divines present us with what they regarded as the characteristic model of a biblical sermon. First, that it would begin with an introduction to and of the text. Second, that it would provide briefly an analysis of the main points that that text taught Thirdly, that it would then lead to an exposition of the truths enshrined in the text, particularly noting the following points. First of all, a clear explanation of how this truth arises from this particular text. In other words, anxious to engage their hearers in seeing how it was that the truth of the gospel was derived from the text of the Scripture a straightforward explanation of the doctrine that was taught in the text, often employing other passages selected from Scripture to highlight that doctrine, leading to, uh, where possible, helpful illustrations of the principle enshrined in the text, and a sensitive dealing with any difficulties that might arise in the minds of the hearers. So introduction, analysis, exposition, and then finally, uh, and certainly not least, application. An application could involve dealing with intellectual or doctrinal error, explaining how we should respond to the teaching, uh, unmasking the sins that are revealed here by the Scriptures, showing uh, disturbed and uh, crippled Christians how the text of Scripture would help them forward, providing what they called notes of trial to answer the question, how do I know that what this text teaches is becoming true for me? And this, the Westminster Divines underline, is to be done in plain speech with wisdom, seriousness of purpose, and not least in manifest love for the congregation. And Flavel was a remarkable illustration of that. 
There is, uh, as some of you will know, been much discussion in the last uh, 50 years particularly uh, about the, the influences that created this particular style of preaching. The influences not least in the Reformed tradition that transformed the style of preaching from the style of Calvin's homily into this particular form of Puritan exposition. And in that connection, much attention has been paid to the influence of Peter Ramus. I want to suggest that far more important than the influence of Peter Ramus is actually the influence of the Apostle Paul. The driving the driving model for the Puritan preaching is twofold. Part of it, in terms of its framework, is derived from Paul's teaching at the end of 2 Timothy 3, that Scripture is useful for teaching, for reproving, for transforming, and for equipping. Coupled with what the Puritans regarded as the quintessential model of apostolic preaching to be found in the letter to the Romans. The opening of the text in Romans 1, 16 to 17, the unfolding of the text in Romans 1, 18 to the end of chapter 11, and the rigorous application of the text to a variety of situations and circumstances in chapters 12 through 16. And so, uh, in their rediscovery of the Pauline gospel, they believed that they had also rediscovered the apostolic style of preaching. And as I say, we find this in measure vividly illustrated in Flavel's book, Divine Conduct or the Mystery of Providence. It actually uh, is the uh, result of a series of sermons that Flavel preached on Psalm 57 verse 2. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. And Flavel in general, both within the text of the mystery of providence and throughout the text of the mystery of providence, follows through this general Puritan style of preaching. The text is briefly opened, but the opening of the text has in view the crystallization of its teaching. And the crystallization of its teaching is, Flavel affirms, essentially this, that the providence of God is, first of all, universal, secondly, efficacious, and thirdly, for the people of God, constantly beneficial. He is saying there are three things that the Christian believer needs to know. That there is no limit to the providence of God. That there is no ultimate hindrance to the providence of God. And there is no ultimate evil for the believer in the providence of God. And so he is moving, as it were, from the specifics of the context of the text to the general doctrine which is expressed by the text and therefore lies, as it were, within the very womb of the text of Scripture itself. And that kind of introduction leads him then to a third stage. The text is open, the doctrine is crystallized, and then thirdly, the truth, that is the truth of the text, is contextualized. That is to say, uh, Flavel moves uh, relatively speedily to answer the question. He doesn't always raise the question, but in essence he is answering the question. How do I move this, this truth from there to there? How do I move this doctrine that is given concrete expression in that horizon into this horizon? that, to use the language of the Westminster divines, the hearers may feel the vitality of the truth of the gospel. And he does this in a, a very straightforward way. First of all, he provides 
a series of contexts which exegete the words of the text, all things. I will cry to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. And he begins to lay out in a rich manner what those all things might be. God's providence in the varied areas of his congregation's life, from their conversion to their employment to their family life to the evil events that trouble them. And then having done that, having provided a series of contexts that enliven the bare principle that God performs all things, he goes on to provide a series of windows which highlight the principle God performeth all things for me. And it's here that you see uh, Flavel as a, a fine illustration of the principle that even if you might like to be preaching to a particular group of people, you are actually preaching to the group of people among whom God has placed you. And to that extent, it's incumbent upon you to shape the manner of your preaching to the flock that God has given you. As C.H. Spurgeon uh, would put it with characteristic humor uh, much later on, uh, God uh, in Christ has said to us that we are to feed his sheep, not his giraffes. And Flavel, by contrast with the likes of John Owen or Thomas Goodwin or Richard Sibbs or Thomas Watson, who spent so much of their time laboring in the great centers of learning and society, whether Cambridge or Oxford or London. John Flavel, educated, sophisticated, intelligent pastor, though he was, or should I say, because he was intelligent, sophisticated pastor, was not placed within the context of high society or high learning, but placed within the context of a congregation largely of seafaring people. And so, as you read through uh, Flavel's works, you will certainly observe from time to time uh, indications of his intellectual sophistication. But by contrast with these others, you will find very uh, at least comparatively few, literary allusions or classical quotations. His illustrations are drawn like these other brethren's illustrations were drawn, from the actual world, the actual society in which he was living. And so most of the windows that Flavel provides are windows drawn uh, from the world of biography, from the world of the home, from the world of people, from the world of seafarers. He gives, uh, if you read this little reprint on pages 67 to 70, a most dramatic illustration of uh, encountering somebody who, through the most appalling circumstances, was brought to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And the thing that drives it home to his congregation in Dartmouth is that happened just down the road. It is for them. It is real. It is true. It is near. So that the same thing might be said about John Flavel as was sometimes said about Richard Baxter, that in his Sunday preaching, he so employed the language of his local society that those who listened to him could not move into that local society during the rest of the week without encountering the time bombs that Baxter had planted in their minds, exploding in their faces and constantly bringing to bear upon them the principle that the Word of God is not far away in literary and classical allusions, but the Word is near, and that even here 
in Dartmouth, God speaks with great power. And it's just at this point that the Puritan preacher operated with a grid in which a major question arises. And that major question, um, which one almost senses, once they had done their basic exegetical work, they might turn over a blank page and on that blank page write two words. So what? And that which was most characteristic of the preaching of most of the Puritans was their concern to answer that question, so what? That is, to bring the truth of the gospel from the horizon of exposition to the horizon of application. And that general question, so what, further divided into two subsidiary questions. The question, how to, and the question, what if? The question, how to, and the question, what if? Let me say something about each of these questions, not least as Flavel deals with them. First of all, the how-to question. The Directory for Public Worship uh, that had been uh, written alongside the other uh, documents of the Westminster Assembly had said in connection with preaching, in exhorting to duties, he, that is the preacher, is, as he seeth cause, to teach also the means that help to the performance of them. Now, I think I'll be bold enough to say that it's the ability to follow this principle through that is the difference between somebody who is an intelligent expositor and somebody who is a genuine pastor-teacher. The key here lies in the ability not to articulate the truth formally, but to answer the latent question, yes, but how does this become mine? And so, for example, you find in connection with the doctrine of divine providence that Flavel works through a series of practical responses to that question. Yes, it's all very well to say that uh, you trust in God who performs all things for you. But how do you come to trust in the God who performs all things for you? In other words, Flavel will not leave the exhortation, trust in the God who performs all things for you, simply dangling in the air before his congregation. But he comes and he molds himself around his congregation, imaginatively sees himself not simply as the speaker of the Word of God, but the auditor, the hearer of the Word of God. Helps his congregation to answer this how-to question. For example, in the mystery of providence, he teaches his people how to work at remembering and exploring the providence of God towards you. Here is this marvelous uh, little one-liner. It's actually two lines, but you can forgive him because he's a Puritan. He says to his congregation in this vivid way, now think about these people. They're seafarers. It's, it's commonplace for them just to watch the water. Let not your thoughts swim like feathers upon the surface of the waters but sink like lead to the bottom. And you see what he's trying to do. He's doing something that is, in my view, characteristic of all truly great preaching. He's employing his imaginative skills, I don't mean in the sense of speculative skills, but imaginative skills, to get inside the mind and heart of his hearer and then to implant images in that mind and heart that will provide that hearer with stepping stones to understand how it is that I can make this my own. And in such uh, vivid language 
as this, he gives very fine expression to where most listeners are. Or is that an exaggeration to say most listeners are there? That the words are somewhere there. That the truth is somewhere there. But it's like a feather floating on top of the water and it's not sinking down. And so he uses this principle to help people to understand how you get the truth to sink down, to grip you. And this you do, he says, inter alia, by learning to trace the connection between the providences of God and the promises of God. So that the providences of God are not extraneous, isolated events, but are caused to get grip upon our souls by the way in which we learn to see them as specific fulfillments of the providence of God and his promises. So that we learn, says Flavel, to look beyond the specifics of the providence to recognize the hand of God, the provider. And in seeing the hand of God, the provider, we learn to rest upon him in providences in our lives where we cannot detect his presence. And so he provides us uh, with counsel in answer to the how-to question. He also provides us with counsel with respect to the what-if question. That is to say, in the, the language of uh, the Puritans, he, he helps his hearers to resolve uh, cases or questions of conscience. I think one can put this a different way. One of the great differences, I suspect, between the Puritan view of the ministry and much contemporary view of the ministry is that much contemporary view of the ministry thinks about preaching and as what happens outside of that preaching, for example, in the pastor's study, as counseling. So there, there is an almost stated gap between what I think I'm doing when I'm preaching, what I think I'm doing when I'm counseling. For the Puritan pastor, the place where he did the bulk of his counseling was the very place where he did all of his preaching. His preaching had uh, this concern in view in line with what Paul had said about the usefulness of Scripture, that it's useful both for rebuking and correcting. And these two notions are notions, at least in Paul's language, on the one hand of a deconstruction of the sinful, rebuking, and a reconstruction of Christ-likeness, correcting. Correcting in 2 Timothy 3 is a hospital language, healing language, transforming language. And the Puritans understood that in their preaching, they always had to have in view, so getting inside the life of the hearer, that they were able to deal with these cases of conscience. So here is a text of Scripture that assures you that God's providence is beneficial, it is universal, and it is irresistible. But what if I find it difficult to discern God's will? Flavel will not simply respond to us, well, you'd better learn to discern God's will. He doesn't say there's a local Christian bookstore and it's full of books teaching you how to discover God's will. He sits down patiently, as it were, and he provides us with a series of principles that will enable us to grow in discerning God's will. What do I do if God seems to be slow? Well, you might think, you better just be patient. But there can be all the difference in the world between a counsel of perfection, be patient, for a person who is natively impatient, and the ability to 
mold your teaching into that person's life to enable them to move through the pain barrier from impatience to patience. And so he answers the question then, what if God seems to be slow? And I'll leave you to read the mystery of providence if you're impatient to find what the answer is. Here's another question. Here is someone struggling, Flavel understands, and asking the question, but how can this specific event in my life possibly be a revelation of God's love? He weaves his way again into the situation. How do I respond to those providences of God that are actually causing me to reel, are destabilizing me? What if I find it difficult to be submissive to God's will in his providences? Nothing here in Flavel simply blasting his congregation in uh, blood splats against the back wall and hollering at them. You'd better learn to be submissive to God's will. How do I learn to be submissive to God's will? How does God's word teach me to be submissive? to God's will. In other words, what Flavel is seeking to do is this. He is seeking to, in his ministry, do not only that part of preaching that actually is the easier part, to expound the text of Scripture, but that part of preaching which, as the Westminster divines recognized, and they meant it in one sense, but it's true in almost every sense, is the most painful part of preaching, the part of preaching that causes greatest pains, not to the listener, but to the preacher, of so working through the Word of God that the how-to questions of the human heart are answered. And I say that because the truth of the matter is, with a certain degree of intellectual sophistication and a good theological education, you can tell people what the text of Scripture is saying. But it takes a knowledge of the human heart and a discernment of those ways in which the Word of God in Scripture is brought to bear upon the human heart in the diverse situations in which it finds itself today in history to be the kind of preacher that John Flavel was. Now, uh, let me round this off and leave uh, good time for questions and discussion. Or if there is no question and no discussion, uh, good time uh, for silent meditation <laughs> or my public embarrassment. What can we learn from John Flavel? Well, you're saying that's supposed to be what you've just said. What can we learn from John Flavel? Let me put it like this. Preaching in the 21st century should not be merely a mimic of preaching in the 17th century. That for more than one reason. The 17th century congregation uh, was uh, probably, for all the expense of buying a copy of the Bible, much more familiar with the world of the Bible and the text of Scripture than the average 21st century congregation. It would be completely legitimate. I think it would be an unfair criticism of Flavel, but it would be completely legitimate to say, if we are going to be preachers of the Word of God today, then we need to deal more uh, on the end of the exposition of the text. And that certainly would be a fair criticism. And after all, more than 300 years later, uh, most of us, uh, the one person here who has the smallest personal library may well have a better personal library than John Flavel had. We ought to be able to handle Scripture with greater 
technical expertise than flavor. That is not to say we would do as well in an ordination exam as flavor. But we have equipment, we have equipment of the mind that is excellent by comparison with the equipment of the mind that had been provided for John Flavel. And so, uh, we should have no difficulty in recognizing that in our preaching today, there might be different balances of emphasis. But it seems to me there are several things that we need to learn from John Flavel and can learn from John Flavel. Um, teaching homiletics, uh, thankfully, is not my calling in life. Uh, but on those occasions uh, when uh, someone who does not know me has asked for counsel about preaching, uh, I have usually given this counsel. If you're going to be a preacher of the gospel, Every time you listen to preaching, you need to listen to that preaching with two heads. One is your personal head, and the other is your homiletical head. Your personal head listens to the preaching of the gospel in order to be nourished by that preaching of the gospel. But if you're going to be a preacher, you need to put another head on the shoulder, and ask, that head needs to be asking the question, what is it that is being done in this exposition of Scripture? that is making such a powerful impression upon my life? What is it that is being done? And so, for example, as one reads through the mystery of providence or the work of any other great preacher, one of the things you are looking for is to learn, even if it be by osmosis, those basic principles that enable preaching to fulfill the end for which preaching was instituted. And that is to say, uh, for Flavel, at least in terms of the grid with which Paul provides Timothy, that the Scriptures have been breathed out by God in order for the servant of God to be equipped in the usefulness of Scripture for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we learn from Flavel as a model that there is a basic grid. A preaching grid is not the invention of some mid-20th century American professor of homiletics. Jesus had a preaching grid. Every time he preached, he thought there were at least four different kinds of people listening to him. And it would make a fascinating demon dissertation or even PhD dissertation to analyze the preaching of Jesus in terms of the preaching grid that he announces as the sower of the seed in the parable of the sores and the soils and the human heart. So fundamental to Flavel's preaching is this understanding of the apostolic preaching grid. And coupled with that basic understanding of the preaching grid is the use of the imaginative element of the intellect to listen to the preaching of the Word before the preaching of the Word in order to shape the preaching of the Word. Or to put it another way, as the great John Owen put it, saying essentially the same thing. I find that the sermons, this is Owen, not Ferguson, I find, uh, although it's Ferguson as well, and I hope it's whoever, I find that the sermons that go from me with most power are the ones that came to me with most power. In other words, you find in Flavel this process of the one who is going to minister the Word of God, placing his life under the Word of God, being searched by the Word of God, being redirected through the Word of God, learning the answers to the how-to questions of his own heart in order that imaginatively he may then plant these time bombs 
times into the minds of his hearers. Now, they may be beneficent time bombs, but time bombs that will explode with moments of illumination that enable the hearer to see how the Word of God applies to them, how the Word of God may be practiced by them. And it's this that made Flavel such, at least in my own view, such a great pastor and teacher. Perhaps I can illustrate uh, the point from another universe of discourse. Um, As those few of you who know me uh, know, uh, uh, partly because we're a Scottish family, but partly for genetic reasons, we are a golfing family. And I remember uh, at one stage um, when our second son was, I think he was probably about 13, and uh, he was already showing some evidences that he might provide my retirement income uh, by the quality of his golf. Um, But I could see, I mean, I had played golf, I had played golf, and I had played golf uh, uh, relatively well. I could see there was something not quite right. There was something not quite right, try not to get technical, something not quite right about his ball striking. Now, if you know any, any, any ball contact sport, ball striking is of the essence of the thing. And you only need to compare the sound that you, poor amateur, make at the point of contact with the sound of a high-class professional. You know, if you're interested in golf, um, if you go along to a professional golf tournament and go along to the practice range and watch these guys hitting golf balls as though they were uh, shooting them out of a rifle, you realize that the name of the game is the same. You're, You're all allowed 14 clubs. You use little white balls. You have to use the same holes. Otherwise, a completely different game you're playing. Completely different game. Now, here is my boy, and I realize that if he's really going to make progress, something needs to happen to his ball striking. I realize there's something wrong. But my problem is this. I can say to him, Peter, that's wrong. Now, that's the easy part of preaching. And that's why in the evangelical world, much preaching tends to focus on that. You're a sinner and you're wrong. You're an unsanctified saint and you're still wrong. But the real teacher, well, it so happened I'd had a, I had a friend who was, uh, who was one of the, uh, we had been boys together, and he turned out better than I did. He was He was probably one of the best three or four professional teachers in Scotland. So I thought, phone up the old friend. and uh, So I took him down to my friend, uh, Bill. And as I was about to leave my little lad in his hands, he said, Sinclair, just just hang around and watch. I didn't realize until later on that he was probably thinking, I'm going to show you a thing or two, because the last time we had ever played, which was about 18 years before, I'd actually beaten him, and I don't think he'd ever forgotten. (laughs) So I sat down and I watched. It was a, a, for somebody who, who was trying to teach anything, it was a truly inspirational experience. To see this man within a period of half an hour not only immediately analyze what was wrong, but to be able to move my little offspring from what was wrong to what was right. So that I saw before my eyes as my friend kind of, he, he, he wrapped himself into my little boy. He wrapped himself into my little boy in order to produce the basic transformation of muscle movement, that within half an hour, he started there with something I knew was wrong, but I couldn't fix it. 
Lo and behold, sitting there and seeing with my own eyes and hearing with my own ears and watching in the very trajectory of the ball, this dramatic transformation that had taken place. Because he understood not only what was wrong, but he understood where it was that the transformation needed to take place and how that transformation could be affected. And it's this, the Puritan preaching uh, was by no means perfect. Flavos' exposition of Scripture was by no means perfect. But they had developed this uncanny ability to deal with the how do I get their question and the reason they had developed that uncanny ability was almost certainly because they had asked it and answered it themselves. Or to put it another way around, they had not finished their exposition of Scripture and left their desk, but they had stayed at their desk and asked the question, now how is this to be effected? And then they went back to their preparation and saw that as the great goal of their preaching. And in this, there are six volumes of Flavo's works. Uh, I don't know how expensive they are today, but I'm sure you would get a decent uh, discount at the Westminster Seminary bookstore. But if you don't want to buy them all, uh, do, if you've never read it, get hold of The Mystery of Providence, because it's a fine illustration of this particular principle. Mr. Chairman, I'm done, and we've got about seven minutes for questions if that yes I wonder if you could comment on the impact of the study of Latin rhetoric on Puritan fiction you know Flavel for example was Oxford trained and a lot of his sermons include extensive quotations from uh, you know Latin rhetoricians uh, I, I just wonder what impact that might have, might have had on they seem to have, they, they were, in the Puritan preaching, there is, there is certainly the influence of the principles of classical rhetoric. You find, really, you find, this, you find similar things in Calvin, even although Calvin's sermons uh, are never published with those divisions. So that was, that was the common uh, background of 16, you know, middle 16th, to uh, middle and late 17th century educated individuals, uh, those, those basic principles of rhetoric. What generally people think uh, was injected into all that by uh, um, the work of Peter Ramus uh, was this kind of element of dichotomizing, the kind of further, the further dividing. That seems to me to have been the, the, the universal framework of reference for public speech. And so their speech is characteristically 17th century. But the, uh, as I've been saying, I think the more important thing is what they did within that framework. And it's what they did within that framework that I think is readily transferable to any kind of framework that one might use, whether it be and, you know, uh, it, it, with different ethnic backgrounds, we come from different rhetorical traditions. But I think this central element, uh, this practical counseling, pastoral, how-to element, is a huge contribution that they make that is, is actually absent in the general rhetorical tradition. Um, and I do believe that, that um, although it's certainly, uh, this is certainly not in the textbooks, I do believe it was under the sheer force of the pattern of Romans and Ephesians um, and Galatians and uh, Colossians that they saw that before you ended the thing, you had to move from the question of what to the question of how. Those of us who are in the pastoral ministry uh, certainly affirm that, and as you noted, 
describe that as the most difficult aspect of, uh, of preaching. Uh, how do you find the time to do that when you may be teaching at a uh, local institute or, or college, administrating the, the uh, congregation, and still teaching you know, in the congregation four or five times, doing visitation, counseling? It's great to see you. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I mean that. We haven't seen each other for, for donkey's ages. Um, I, well, it's easy for me to say now. Um, you know, the answer, is that, the answer is that you stop doing some things. That's, that's one answer, and it's probably not a practical answer. I think the other, the other answer is, if it's not too late in life, um, to, develop, to develop a series of, of living heads, um, to develop the ability to multitask, to develop the ability to have uh, Velcro strips that mean that it's not just uh, sitting down at the desk that you're asking those questions, but that, that you have so, you've so seen into the framework of what I'm trying to do when I'm preaching, that this is a, this is a really essential part of it, that it just becomes part of the way, part of the way you live is by constantly seeing connections and applications, puzzling, um, Men are not supposed to be able to multitask, but you can't be a pastor without having learned how to multitask. So I, I, think, I think that's part of the answer. Or to put it another way, it's, it's been part of the answer for me with a kind of constant, constant grind of preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. Um, the, the learning to connect preaching and living which I'm sure you've done successfully. One, uh, yeah, another minute. Um, I've been trying to wrestle with this idea um, in some contemporary churches and different models, and how they work with their time, and the issue is preaching to the lost in your congregation. Um, versus just seeing Sunday worship as a time to preach to the believers, I guess. Um, and I guess that ties into the seeker-sensitive churches versus, you know, that's not what the church is about. I guess I'm trying to, to see with this guy's, in this guy's culture, most people would be seen as Christians or in that culture, and so he's, he's always... Yes, yes. Okay. Um, the quick answer is that if you boiled his congregation grid down into two points, the goal of his ministry would be to unmask the gospel hypocrite and to edify the true saint. The challenge being that that grid further developed, and uh, uh, so he is dependent on the Spirit uh, to take this single exposition and apply it in multifarious ways. Ex but the thing that he regards as an ongoing constant is that every single individual before him has, has, has a one basic need, and that is to repent and believe. And consequently, uh, a rightly focused biblical sermon will so exalt Christ that the, that the imperative, and basically every imperative in the New Testament boils down to this, repent and believe the gospel, that the manifold applications of that single principle will be adequate to a full proclamation of salvation in Christ to both 
sinner and saint. Um, and it's pretty obvious, actually, in much of their preaching, not in all of their preaching, um, that they understand, oh, so you're not converted, I need to preach the gospel to you. Oh, so you are converted, I need to preach the gospel to you. Um, 